Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the care of veterans with cancer with Dr. Mikhail Rose. Dr. Rose is a professor of medicine and director of the West Haven VA Comprehensive Cancer Center, and Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. So, Mikhail, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. Sure. Well, I'm originally from Israel. That's where I went to medical school, and I did my residency training there. I came to the United States in 1993, so it's been almost 30 years, and I did my training in hematology-oncology here at Yale. And during that training, I really fell in love with the VA hospital, the veterans, and the whole system. So I was thrilled when the opportunity came up to take a job there in 1999. And uh, I've been there ever since. Uh, I rose through the academic ranks to become a full professor in the section of medical oncology. And I've been section chief of hematology oncology at the VA since uh, 2005. So uh, my areas of interest really have focused on, of course, um, the cancers that are seen commonly in veterans. I'm also very interested in systems of care. So um, practicing in the VA system has really made me interested in efficient use of resources, care coordination, and really streamlining care for people with cancer and complex medical and psychosocial needs which are very common in our population. So there's a few things that I, I want to pick up on on that. So the first is, can you tell us a little bit more about what are the cancers that are particularly common in veterans and are they different from those that are common in the rest of the population? Well, as uh, I'm sure you know, the majority of veterans are still men, although we are seeing an increase in women veterans as more and more women serve in the military. But because our population is mainly men, we see cancers that are common in men, which are mainly prostate cancer and lung cancers. We also see um, cancers of the bladder, skin uh, melanoma, kidney cancer, and liver cancers, and those are probably our um, most common cancers. Uh, I will say that the VA is uh, a leader in um cancer screenings and early detection. So as a result, we really diagnose many of these cancers at an early curable stage, which is wonderful. But of course, the patients that are referred to us in medical oncology tend to have the more advanced stages of these cancers that I mentioned. So a few things. Um, are there particular cancers that we see more commonly after veterans have been exposed to either chemical warfare or radiation? I mean, we think about things like Agent Orange um, and so on. Can, can you talk a little bit about whether we're seeing increases in particular cancers among veterans based on their occupation? Uh, absolutely. So we we're learning more and more that exposures that our veterans uh, uh, sustain during their military service really has a huge impact on their health um, 
all throughout their life. And uh, that really does include uh, cancers. So uh, you mentioned Agent Orange, which is uh, a huge risk factor for cancer among the veterans of the Vietnam War and the Vietnam War era. And actually, recently, several new conditions have been added to the list of uh, Agent Orange-related malignancies. So one of those, uh, which I'll mention, is not a cancer, but it's a precancerous condition called monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, or people may have heard of the term MGUS, which is a precancerous condition which um, may lead to myeloma and other blood disorders. Um, of course, uh, lung cancer is very high up there on the list and prostate cancer. So two of the most common cancers in veterans are related to Agent Orange exposure. Uh, the other thing I'll mention about Agent Orange is that the VA has recently recognized um, that it wasn't only the veterans that were in Vietnam were exposed to Agent Orange. So Agent Orange was stored um, in multiple locations in the United States, for example, um, military bases in Florida and Maryland and others, and outside the United States, uh, Canada, Cambodia, um, Thailand, Korea, and other sites. And so the VA does recognize now that, now that veterans who were exposed to Agent Orange may have just served on those bases that I mentioned. Okay. And one of the things that you mentioned was that the VA has a really robust program of screening. So a couple of questions. One, for the cancers that are most commonly detected among veterans, can you talk a little bit more about the screening programs that are available to them? Absolutely. Um, I think maybe I'll focus on lung cancer, um, although, of course, prostate cancer um, also is a cancer that we do screen for. Um, we know that the screening for prostate cancer is a little bit more controversial. And in fact, some of the important studies about screening for prostate cancer were done in the VA system. But when you look at lung cancer, that's one of that's the newest cancer that we now screen for. Um, and um, turns out that there's, it is actually quite complicated to screen for lung cancer because it's easy enough to do a quick CAT scan in someone at risk, that is that they have smoked um, a certain amount of cigarettes uh, within uh, the last 15 years. But um, turns out that you need a whole system of care to follow up on those uh, CAT scans. And that's where the VA really um, excels because it is such a system of care. And so the VA is a leader in screening for lung cancer. And in fact, there's a, a national program, which we're participating in, that is uh, seeking to um, structure that system with um, templates and algorithms and um, make sure that people who do get screened come back for their follow-up tests and their follow-up screening. So that's really a very exciting uh, field that I feel the VA has uh, a lot to offer. Um, here in VA Connecticut, we were one of the first VAs, one of the first sites in the country to screen for lung cancer. And we have already screened uh, 
thousands and thousands of veterans and picked up many lung cancers at an early stage. For the screening for lung cancer, you mentioned that Agent Orange would put veterans at risk. Um, But yet, many of the screening protocols, as you mentioned, are really based on smoking history. Is there an exception for people who don't meet the smoking threshold but may have been exposed to various agents that would also put them at risk? No, uh, we're not there yet. Um, I think that's a field of active uh, research. How do you incorporate other risk factors for lung cancer. We know we know a lot about smoking, but like you mentioned, um, there's many other risk factors. But we don't have enough data yet to incorporate those exposures into our screening algorithms. So I would say the answer to that is no. Although um, we definitely make exceptions when veterans uh, have had a very heavy exposure to Agent Orange. Perhaps this is an opportunity also to mention some other exposures that we know veterans sustain uh, in their military service. Um, I don't know if people have heard of um, the problem with water contamination in Camp Lejeune. So Camp Lejeune is a Marine Corps base. Uh, It's uh, located in North Carolina. Uh, sadly, between the years of in the 1950s to the 1980s, the drinking water there was contaminated by solvents, by benzene, and those are known risk factors for leukemias, for other bone marrow disorders, for lymphomas, bladder cancer, kidney cancer, liver cancer, and probably lung cancer. And so that is another very important um, exposure that veterans sustain. Um, I will mention one other um, exposure that has also been in the news and the VA is addressing more and more, and that's the burn pits, right? The burn pits that were used to destroy um, basically garbage, military equipment um, in Vietnam, sorry, in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq um, caused a huge amount of uh, airborne toxins that our uh, veterans uh, who resided in those military bases were exposed to. And uh, some of you may have heard of the PACT Act, which was signed by the president just last August, and it really expanded health care and benefits for veterans exposed to many of these uh, conditions, including with an emphasis on burn pits. And I do think the PACT Act is going to really increase the number of veterans we take care of in the next few years. Do those benefits um, and those exposures affect veterans' families as well as the veterans themselves? I mean, if we're thinking about um, exposures that may affect entire communities, one would imagine that um, anybody who's on that base... um, whether uh, it's the veteran themselves or uh, others, would equally be exposed. Is that right? That is probably correct. Um, There is not really a recognition that veterans' families who develop cancer um, are, this may be secondary to those exposures. There is uh, some recognition of other conditions like uh, birth defects in children of veterans, for example, are recognized. And that, again, is a whole field of very active um, 
research. I will also um, mention that uh, the VA cares for veterans, but uh, rarely for veterans' families. So in that regard, it is different than other healthcare systems. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that you you mentioned, um, both in terms of why you were attracted to the VA to begin with, as well as um, some of the benefits that you've seen is really the the system that they have. So can you talk a little bit more about what are the components of the system of the VA that you think makes it um, more robust in terms of screening and offering care to veterans? Well, I think there are several components. Um, the VA is the largest healthcare system in the country. It is an integrated system Um, The VA has the oldest electronic medical record in the country. Um, So way before most healthcare systems had an electronic medical record, we were already using this uh, program called VISTA. And that has a a huge amount of benefits. Uh, It unites the whole system. So if a veteran gets care in Florida and then moves to Connecticut, I have no problem looking up that data. Um, So that helps. It also enables streamlining a lot of tasks using reminders. It enables data gathering. Um, And also a lot of it is... um, When you have a veteran who you know is going to be in your system for life, there is a strong incentive to um, implement preventive care measures um, because uh, you you as a healthcare system will reap those benefits. So I think that also um, helped um, push the field forward um, it's also, um, you know, part of the mission of the VA. It is good care, right? Preventive care is good care. The VA has had a huge emphasis on primary care, which is um, really the bedrock of preventive care, of screening for cancers um, and uh, other conditions. And uh, there's also uh, in the culture, a lot of, uh, we are very much encouraged to come up with uh, uh, efficiencies, with um, systems to, uh, with quality improvements. That's a huge part of the culture at the VA. Um, So those are probably the main reasons. But when you look at studies about uh, success of uh, cancer screening, the VA is, um, um, almost always sort of at the top of the list of uh, percent veterans screened and guidelines uh, followed. Yeah, so all really good points. We need to take a short break for a medical minute, but we'll pick up this story on the other side, learning more about caring for our veterans with Dr. Mikkel Rose. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital where their cancer genetics and prevention program includes a colon cancer genetics and prevention program that provides comprehensive risk assessment, education, and screening. SmiloCancerHospital.org. Genetic testing can be useful for people with certain types of cancer that seem to run in their families. Genetic counseling is a process that includes collecting a detailed personal and family history, a risk assessment, and a discussion of genetic testing options. 
Only about 5 to 10% of all cancers are inherited, and genetic testing is not recommended for everyone. Individuals who have a personal and or family history that includes cancer at unusually early ages, multiple relatives on the same side of the family with the same cancer, more than one diagnosis of cancer in the same individual, rare cancers, or family history of a known altered cancer predisposing gene could be candidates for genetic testing. Resources for genetic counseling and testing are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Mikhail Rose. We're talking about care of veterans with cancer. And right before the break, Mikhail, you were telling us about some of the advantages of the VA system that you think leads to, you know, higher rates of screening and so on. One of which is that it's an integrated system. So all of the care is offered under one system. Um, there's the longest running electronic health record system, which really is not just in one system, but it is across the country. Um, so if a, a veteran is treated in Florida and moves to Connecticut, you can still view all of those records. There's a strong incentive to really keep veterans uh, healthy uh, and, and a strong emphasis on preventative uh, care. And I think the other thing that we didn't mention is that, you know, all of the care is done under one roof. Veterans um, in general get all of their care at the VA. They don't kind of get part of their care at the VA and part of their care at different hospitals and different doctor's offices. So, you know, as we think about the lessons learned from the VA system, I want to kind of pick your brain about what might be policy implications with regards to the rest of the healthcare system. So you mentioned right before the break that in the VA system, there is an emphasis on efficiency and best practice. And yet we know that in general, the U.S. healthcare system lacks that efficiency. We tend to be a very expensive system and we don't tend to get the same health outcomes that one would anticipate for the amount of money that we spend. Can you talk a little bit about um, what you think might be some uh, things that, uh, you know, the federal government uh, might want to consider in terms of healthcare reform, which is always uh, something that people are thinking about, especially when they think about how we can cut the deficit and, uh, you know, improve, improve healthcare at the same time? Yes, well, thank you for that question. Um, I don't know if I have all the answers, but um, after working in the VA system for more than 20 years, and of course, um, being very aware of what happens in other systems, uh, there are some obvious um, improvements that we could make, and a lot of them have been recognized and um, are happening, maybe not as fast as we would like. Um, for example, the electronic medical record, of course, is now adopted in pretty much, I think, every healthcare system in the country. And there's a requirement, I think, a federal requirement that these systems talk to each other so that more and more we are able to see what's happening to our patients in other 
um, systems. So that is um, happening and hopefully will continue to uh, improve and that process should be streamlined. The emphasis on primary care and preventive care is a very important one. And I think that, um, but that is a complicated one. We have a shortage of uh, primary care uh, doctors and uh, nurse practitioners and PAs, uh, et cetera. That is a field that we should expand. These people, these amazing practitioners should be rewarded for their hard work and um, they should be supported uh, the other thing is to invest in supportive services. The VA has um, a huge number of social workers, for example. Uh, those incredibly valuable resources. Um, uh, the VA offers travel assistance to veterans. Um, that's very important because often that is the barrier. People can't get to their appointments, and the VA does recognize that and has every hospital has a travel department. And that is a benefit for many of the veterans. Another big thing is drug costs, right? So the VA covers uh, drug costs. Veterans get pretty much all their drugs uh, free or cheap. So they take them. If a patient can't afford their medication, they're not going to take them. Um, And then uh, the consequences are bad for the patient and, of course, for the healthcare system. So that's another huge thing that I know we are all aware of, the cost of drugs and their availability to our patients. Yeah. You know, kind of taking each of those um, those factors in turn, well, when you think about primary care, and, and I agree with you, you know, um, having a primary care as a gatekeeper or a segue to um, various specialists often is very efficient, um, wh- as opposed to having chest pain, going to a cardiologist, having them tell you, no, it's not your heart, and then going to a pulmonologist and them telling you, no, it's not your lungs, and then going to a gastroenterologist and having them tell you, no, it's not uh, your GI system, only to find out later that it might have been related to something, uh, you know, extraneous. Um, You know, having a primary care doctor who can kind of do a very good history and physical and and work, work things up uh, might be very efficient. My perception, however, is that there is some reticence on the part of the American public um, to uh, to embrace a system with primary care as a gatekeeper. We've seen this in other uh, systems of what's commonly called, quote, socialized medicine, um, air quotes here. Um, but... Um, you know, it, it seems to me that that is something that not a lot of Americans really embrace. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, whether you get pushback from veterans who don't want to uh, go through primary care? Is there an obligation for them to do so? Um, h- how does that work? Um, actually, I don't. Um uh, the VA does require every veteran to have a primary care provider. Um, but, you know, Anise, you shouldn't call them gatekeepers. These people are not, that's not their main role. Their role is to maintain and promote the health of their 
patient. And um, the gatekeeping function is, I would say, minor relative to all the other uh, benefits they can uh, offer uh, the patients. Um, But I also uh, think that an efficient system uh, helps the patients. For example, when we have an abnormal CAT scan of the chest, we bring that scan to our multidisciplinary forum, the tumor board, and we decide right away where this veteran is going to go. Will they go directly to the surgeon? Will they go to the oncologist or the radiation therapist? Instead of the veteran himself going from specialist to specialist only to say, oh, sorry, I can't do surgery, or sorry, this is not a tumor that's conducive to radiation. So you can put together systems that help the patient, him or herself, and uh, save money. And that's really what we try and do at the VA. Um, That's one of the things I've really pushed for at uh, my VA. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, it seems to me that the VA is a microcosm of kind of universal healthcare um, in the sense that VAs uh, offer veterans access. Um, You know, they're all covered. Uh, There are multiple VAs around the country um, that offer services um, and can do so in a cost-efficient manner. Um, Do you think that as a as a country, it's a, it's something to consider in terms of following the VA system for everybody, um, expanding access to everybody under a system kind of like the VA. Well, uh, I'm biased, obviously. <laughs> I would say yes. Um, you know, healthcare systems are very complex um, systems, and there are pros and cons to every system. Certainly, there are plenty of uh, uh, problems in the VA system too. But overall, I think, I do believe that um, having a system in which um, the mission is more comprehensive, there, the, there is, uh, it is a non, not-for-profit. And when providers are mostly salaried and not um, so much dependent on um, doing more procedures um, is beneficial to everyone. I think it saves money. I think it uh, most importantly promotes the health of um, patients. Yeah, certainly realigning incentives uh, is helpful. One of the critiques that universal healthcare systems um, like the VA, like the Canadian healthcare system, like the NHS have is um, that, uh, well, a few criticisms. One is um, prolonged wait times. Do you find that in the VA system? So I can't speak for the VA system as a whole. Of course, it's a huge uh, healthcare system. Like I said, the largest um We are required, for example, and this is every specialist, to see a patient within 30 days. If we cannot fit that patient in within 30 days, uh, they are to be sent to the community. 
we often find that um, when we send patients out to the community, they wait 60 days and 90 days and, uh, and longer. So actually have, being part of a system where you are required to provide access and to see patients in a timely fashion is very important. Um, try getting an appointment for, um, you know, Dermatology a specialist or a subspecialist. Yeah, yeah. So no. um, I, uh, it, it's a complicated matter, but I am very much in favor of a system having benchmarks and holding its members accountable. Dr. Mikal Rose is a professor of medicine and director of the West Haven VA Comprehensive Cancer Center. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.